0: If you're enjoying this MedPrep2Go Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Crush Step 1 podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medprep and find our new subscription podcast called MedPrep2Go Step 1 Bundle. Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Ted O'Connell with the MedPrep2Go to podcast. Today we'll be reviewing three pathology questions. Just a reminder that you can find all of these questions as well as many more at medprep 2 If you have feedback or you'd like to get involved helping to develop questions for this free online and audio question bank, please contact us through the website or you can contact me directly at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please give us a review and tell your friends as these will both help us a lot in the development of this project. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about me and my other projects and books, you can find me at Tedxoconnell.com. All right, let's get started with the first question. A four-month-old boy presents to the emergency department with his mother, who has noticed that for the past two weeks, his lips and extremities are turning blue when he cries or feeds. The infant has also been fussier than usual and does not seem to be putting on weight, which the mother attributes to him feeding less now than he usually does. The mother did not have any prenatal care, but the infant was born at term with no complications. Oxygen saturations are 88% on room air, and he is tachypnic with respirations of 45 per minute. On physical examination, the infant is irritable and is noted to have a cyanotic episode when he is agitated. He is below average weight for his age and height. Tetralogy of Fallot is suspected. Which of the following abnormalities would not be expected to be found on further investigation. A. Differential cyanosis. B. A harsh systolic ejection murmur on the left sternal edge. C. Oxygenation not improving on 100% oxygen for 5 minutes. D. Right axis deviation on electrocardiogram. Or E. Right-to-left shunting of blood in the heart. The correct answer is A, differential cyanosis. Differential cyanosis is when the lower limbs have lower oxygenation than the upper limbs. Most commonly, this occurs in severe pulmonary hypertension with a patent ductus arteriosus. Deoxygenated blood from the patent ductus enters the aorta, distal to the subclavian artery, sparing the upper limb. An increased pressure gradient due to pulmonary hypertension forces deoxygenated blood into the aorta. The mixed blood then goes to the lower limb. A patent ductus is not part of the Tetralogy of Fallot, so differential cyanosis would not be expected. Tetralogy of Fallot is made up of pulmonary stenosis, right ventricular hypertrophy, and overriding aorta, and a ventricular septal defect, a right-to-left shunt is present in tetralogy of Fallot, secondary to right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, leading to right ventricular hypertrophy and overall increases in right heart pressure, overcoming left heart pressure. Pulmonary stenosis causes a harsh systolic ejection murmur on the left sternal edge. Ventricular septal defects are often too large to cause a murmur. Right ventricular hypertrophy can cause right-axis deviation seen on electrocardiogram. Option C in the option choices above is the hyperoxia test, used to distinguish between cardiac and respiratory causes of hypoxia. In lung disease, oxygenation is expected to improve, while the opposite is true for cardiac causes. The key learning point of this question is that tetralogy of Fallot is made up of pulmonary stenosis, right ventricular hypertrophy, an overriding aorta, and a ventricular septal defect. Preductal congenital heart defects do not present with differential cyanosis. Question two: A seventy-four-year-old woman presents to her family doctor with an aching upper back pain which has been progressively worsening for the past two weeks. She describes the pain as worse on movement and sometimes feels it in her ribs and chest. The patient has been urinating more but defecating less frequently and has noticed her belt is buckled one notch tighter than it used to be. Over the past few weeks, she admits to feeling tired and weaker with less appetite than usual. She thinks that this is due to her husband being hospitalized with a heart condition. She has a history of hypertension, for which she takes lisinopril 10mg once daily. She has a 20-pack-year smoking history. Vital signs reveal a slight tachycardia at 105 beats per minute, but otherwise are within normal limits. Laboratory results show the following. Urinalysis is positive for Benz-Jones proteins. Hemoglobin is 9.9 grams per deciliter. The erythrocyte count is 2.9 times 10 to the 12th per liter, serum calcium is 11.5 milligrams per deciliter, serum creatinine is 1.4 milligrams per deciliter, and the glomerular filtration rate is 49 milliliters per minute. Considering the most likely diagnosis, which of the following complications is unlikely to occur occur from the underlying disease process. A. AL amyloidosis. B. Cast nephropathy. C. Polycythemia. D. Radiculopathy. Or E. Recurrent infection. The correct answer is C. Polycythemia. Based on a typical presentation of hypercalcemia, renal dysfunction, anemia, and bone pain, The most likely diagnosis is multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma is a malignant proliferation of plasma cells in the bone marrow. Plasma cell proliferation in bone marrow leads to outcompeting for space of all other hematopoietic stem cells in the parenchyma. This results in reduced erythropoiesis and platelet production. Therefore, you would expect anemia and low platelet counts in multiple myeloma rather than an overproduction, despite some other cancers being associated with polycythemia. In 15-20% to 20% of cases, malignant plasma cells do not produce a complete immunoglobulin, resulting in an overproduction of light chains, or Benz-Jones proteins, small enough to pass through the kidneys and be detected in urine. Light chains also accumulate in complexes with TAM horsefall proteins called casts leading to a cast nephropathy, the most common cause of renal disease in multiple myeloma. Light chains can also directly be nephrotoxic. Type A-L amyloidosis results in misfolded light chains being deposited in nerves, tissues, and organs throughout the body, eventually affecting organ function and resulting in symptoms. Osteolytic tumor lesions cause thinning and weakening of the bone leading to pathologic fractures, most commonly in the vertebrae. This can lead to radiculopathy if a nerve root is pinched. Note that serum alkaline phosphatase is not typically increased in multiple myeloma. Serum alkaline phosphatase is released by osteoblasts, and in multiple myeloma there is osteolysis through an isolated increase in osteoclastic activity. Multiple myeloma causes immunosuppression through overproduction of faulty immunoglobulins and suppression of normal immunoglobulin production. Multiple myeloma also produces other cells, such as natural killer cells and macrophages. Additionally, treatment regimens can also increase immunosuppression. Both can lead to recurrent infections. The key learning point of this question is that overproduction of immunoglobulins and light chains in multiple myeloma has systemic effects correlated to the physical impact of protein overproduction or the physiological consequences of plasma cell proliferation and resulting deficiencies. And the third and final question for this episode. A 28-year-old woman presents to the clinic with complaints of dysuria and urinary frequency for the past two days. She came today after noticing a small amount of blood in her urine. She recently returned from her honeymoon in Costa Rica. She uses topical corticosteroids for eczema on her arms. Family history is unremarkable. Vital signs are normal. Physical examination reveals suprapubic tenderness to palpation and no costovertebral angle tenderness. Urine dipstick shows positive leukocytes and nitrites, and an antibiotic is prescribed. Urine culture returns two days later and is positive for a motile, gram-negative bacteria. If this patient developed systemic infection with the most likely causative agent, which of the following is the toxic component of the causative agent? A. DNA B. Lipopolysaccharide C nitrate reductase D pili or E RNA The correct answer is B lipopolysaccharide This patient has acute simple cystitis The most common infectious agent of this disease is Escherichia coli or E coli Unresolved infections can spread upward to the kidneys and eventually the bloodstream where the lipopolysaccharide of E. coli can cause toxic shock syndrome. Answer choices A, DNA, and answer choice E, RNA, are incorrect. E. coli does not use DNA or RNA to cause infection. Answer choice C, nitrate reductase, is incorrect because this enzyme is responsible for changing nitrates to nitrites and is a diagnostic tool to check for infection, rather than a mechanism utilized by E. coli to cause infection. Answer choice D, pili, is incorrect. This is a structure that allows for initial infection into the bladder, but does not produce any harmful effects. The key learning point of this question is that lipopolysaccharide, LPS or endotoxin, is the major component of the outer membrane of gram-negative bacteria, such as E. coli. Lipopolysaccharide increases the negative charge of the cell membrane and helps stabilize the overall membrane structure. Lipopolysaccharide is in large part responsible for the dramatic clinical manifestations of infections with pathogenic gram-negative bacteria, such as E. coli. That's it for this episode. Don't forget that you can find many more questions available at medpreptogo.com or on our other podcast episodes. And if you want to get involved in this project, don't forget to reach out to me at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com. Thank you.